All right, hello and welcome back to Dale's study session. Uh, this is part three on my series on uh, proving the truth of substance dualism or the existence of the Christian soul. Now, I had to take a bit of a hiatus, um, obviously due to circumstances, but now that I'm back, I wanted to try to pick up from where I left off uh, with part three in the series. Uh, and in this part, I'm going to be basically setting up uh, a case to try and prove the truth of substance dualism uh, that minimally defined that our essential self is not a physical substance. So if you remember in part one, I gave a qualified definition of what substance dualism entails, and it's not necessarily uh, the truth that there are two independent or separate substances. Uh, though some versions of, of substance dualism do hold to this, um, there are others that don't, such as Thomistic or Aristotelian substance dualists who view the body, physical body or brain, as more of a mode of the soul itself. Um, you know, sort of like a mode or an extension of the soul. So, yeah, my the minimal definition is just to prove that our essential self, the subject of conscious states and, and properties, is non-physical. It's a non-physical substance. That That's the main aim. And this really relates to the second issue of contention in the mind-body problem. Um, whereas in part two, we dealt with the first issue to prove that conscious properties and states are non-physical. Here we're talking about the subject, the conscious subject itself. So yeah, in this episode, I'm going to be outlining four of the main uh, pro-substance dualist arguments. Um, they're ones that I find to be more persuasive personally, so that's why I wanted to present them. Um, but in the first place, I just have to apologize because obviously I'm not going to be able to do as good of a job or, or be as prepared as I was before um, just because I had to take that hiatus in the series. Uh, so some of this um, was when I was in the flow of things and I was doing part one and part two and I, I had everything together, whereas um, I've had to, in order to make part three here, I've had to kind of, within the space of a day, uh, day and a half really, I, I've just sort of had to refresh my memory as to as to what I wanted to present and then uh, slap it together to, for this recording. So please just forgive me for, for any shortcomings there. Uh, hope In part four, I'll be back to hopefully my normal self, as good as that that is in your guys' opinion. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into this. So, so uh, what is the first main argument, the pro-soul argument, or the first pro-substance dualism argument that I want to present to you guys? And um, this has been termed by some philosophers as the unity of consciousness argument. Basically, this argument hinges on um, utilizing or highlighting the fact that there's a special type of unity that our phenomenal consciousness uh, displays. And it, it uses that uh, to try and prove that it cannot be physical in nature because it's not consistent. That kind of unity, this special type of unity, is inconsistent uh, with a f our physical brain or, or body or physical properties and states and that sort of thing. Um, so in the first place, I'm just going to read out the main premises of this type of argument. and. Um, if you remember William Hasker from part one, he's one of the main proponents or champions of, of this particular argument, the unity of consciousness argument. Um, but here, here are the premises that I'm going to do. So it's a, it's a simple uh, two, 
two premises, one conclusion. So premise number one, if I am a physical object, either a brain, central nervous system, and or a body, whatever you want to say, um, then I do not have a unified conscious field at a, at a given time. Another way of saying this is I, if I am a physical object, then I do not have a unifying or totalizing unified conscious state at any given time. Now, premise number two is obviously, well, I do. Uh, at a phenomenological level, I do have this conscious state, totalizing conscious state of it having a unified conscious field, whether that's a unified visual field or hearing field or whatever you want to uh, say, I, I do have this unifying, totalizing conscious field. Therefore, in conclusion, I am not a physical object because uh, obviously there's something that, uh, yeah, that this is a simple argument. It's logically uh, valid. The conclusion follows inevitably and necessarily from the premises. It commits no logical fallacies, either formal or informal. So really it boils down to, are the two premises true? Are, are they more probably true than false? Uh, in other words, are they logically sound premises? So, okay, let's consider this. For In the first place, premise number two is undeniable. No one can deny this. Remember, it, I'm just saying at a phenomenological level, we do experience uh, every single day a, a unified conscious uh, field or another way, a, a, we do experience totalizing, totalizing and unified conscious fields. For example, uh, a, we have a unified visual field of consciousness at a phenomenological level. Um, every time I, I enter a room, um, I, I have multiple sensations. I, I see a brown desk in front of me. I, I see a black chair uh, by the desk. I see the, I see the window and things outside the window and I have multiple sensations. I, I experience the sensation of touch. So I have this unified, grand unified field of conscious states, uh, various conscious states and, and properties that come about just by entering the room at any given time. Um, so just to narrow it down, let's talk about the sensations of color and let's say, let's just narrow it down to keep it simple. We have a unified visual field of consciousness. I, I'm having multiple sensations of color, a black, brown, red, green, whatever, whatever you got in, in a room, when you come in the room, you see it all at once. It's all unified. It's a totalizing state where various conscious states are all unified together within one's visual conscious field. So just before I go on, uh, it, it might prove in instructive or informative to just kind of describe what, what is it we mean by this unifying field or what is this unity of consciousness uh, entail that we're talking about here. So basically what the first thing that I'm trying to get through here is that these unifying, um, the, the con consciousness's unified field entails that we have subsumptive phenomenal unity. So that means that all of one's individual conscious sensations or experiences, all those color sensations, if we're just talking about our visual field for, for a second, can be subsumed within a single totalizing state of consciousness. And it's important that 
what we're arguing for here is that the total this totalizing state is a conscious state in and of itself so i'm having an individual sensation of red and of green and of brown uh, when i walk into this room within my visual field but i in addition to that i'm also having the qualia what it is what it feels like uh, to be in a totalizing state of seeing red and green and brown all at the same time. Um, so this is what uh, we're talking about with the unity of consciousness. There's this totalizing qualia or feeling uh, or conscious sensation that takes place in addition to the individual conscious sensa sensations or states um, that happen in isolation. Um, so this is what this refers to what it's called the total phenomenal unity thesis and as I said it's basically Just reading it here. This is what it says. It says that there is always a single phenomenal state that subsumes all of one's other phenomenal states at any given time uh, That's that's basically the way I described it. So perfect. Uh, yeah um, so one thing just to to notice here is obviously that this notion of what does it mean to for a totalizing state to subsume other conscious states um sometimes it can be a bit unclear so one way to sort of describe uh, physicalists will typically uh view the isolated sensations of color within a visual field as in an atomistic way. They're, they're atoms of conscious experience. They're totally isolated, independent. My sensation of red has nothing to do with my sensation of brown. They're, they're in their own arenas, so to speak. Um, this is called the at atomistic uh, theory of consciousness or conscious states. And they sort of view them as, as atoms of consciousness. Um, and this contrasts directly with the notion of holism that I'm arguing for here when we that we all experience every day um, on a phenomenological level we do experience this totalizing or holistic uh, universal field of consciousness now what one thing that will help you sort of see that actually we're correct and the physicalists or skeptics are totally out to lunch is that Think of our phenomenological experience of various unified fields of consciousness and we have this notion that it's flowing it's a continuous flowing uh, experience when it changes there's a continuous flow but physically speaking if we are just our brain well that's a physical uh, object and that doesn't experience a continuous flow of change that actually uh, takes place in the way all physical changes happen in atomistic or discrete way it, it's not a, a fluid type deal so that that's one way to unpack the holism aspect when we're talking about this phenomenal conscious field and so uh, yeah with the put it this way atoms of conscious experience are seen to be modes inseparable parts of the whole field um, that one has and obviously I, I believe well that's the soul within the soul they're modes of the soul so it's it's really hard to see how a bunch of myriad atomistic conscious experiences um, or states or you know based upon physical brain parts uh, that are constantly changing and that sort of thing 
uh, could give rise to a single non-atomistic, holistic field, a visual field or a conscious field. You know, this seems to be at odds with the physicalist account. It, it doesn't fit in with it. Um, secondly, there, there's also another basic datum of, of conscious experience that we go through every day. Um, and it's not just that we have this quale or feeling of what it is like to be having a totalizing state, but it's that I, my essential self, am separate even from that totalizing state. I am not that totalizing universal, uh, unified visual field or unified conscious field, if you want to expand it out. I'm not identical to that. So the, these are really the, the two basic undeniable phenomenological experiences, conscious experiences that we all know to be the case. No one can deny this and they don't fit in well with a physicalist or atomistic understanding which is necessitated by, if, if we are truly just a physical substance, then it would have to be an atomistic uh, our, our conscious experience would have to be atomistic as opposed to totalizing or, or unified. Um, now, how, how would uh, skeptics or physicalists try to rebut this argument? Because obviously they're aware of it. Um, and they, they try, once again, big, big surprise, but skeptics will try to dismiss it. Oh, it's, it's an illusion. This, this to, you know, I, I don't deny that on a phenomenological level we do have this totalizing, unified, conscious experience, but it's actually an illusion that crops up um, because the con the various conscious experiences, my sensation of red, brown, black, whatever, when I come in, uh, the sounds, whatever, within that conscious field, are unified, are are all atomistic in reality because they correspond to different parts of the brain at that given time. But what cr creates the illusion of this unifying field is synchronicity. They all occur at the same time within the brain. So this is why um, it's said that we have this illusion of a unifying field when it actually doesn't exist. Um, but actually this this objection of the skeptics is ridiculous. It's provably false, even empirically. Scientists have disproven this, but um, I don't even need to care about that, uh, not yet. Um, I just want to point out, look, on a basic philosophical level, it's been refuted by someone named Eric LaRock. Uh, and he points out this, so this is, uh, let me bring this up. So he points to an analogy, look, pretend there's an example where we have five chefs. Each of the five chefs are located in separate kitchens and each chef is consciously aware of only part of a single unifying recipe. Um, it doesn't follow that any one chef is consciously aware of the recipe as a whole, as a unified whole, even if all of the chefs are consciously aware of their respective re recipe parts at the same time. So. Quite obviously, synchronicity has been disproven. It's wrong. It cannot create a unified field out of atomistic conscious states. Um, and I'm, I would leave it at that. I'll just give you a little hint uh, going forward, because in part four, I'm going to be addressing some of the physicalist alternatives and, and theories about the conscious subject uh, and giving you know various negative arguments or counter arguments against substance dualism. So. 
just to give you a, bit, a quick heads up here without going into too much detail. Um, basically, physicalists will say, yeah, but it's not just synchronicity. It's also, there, there's also a level of communication between the various atomistic physical parts of the brain that are activated at any given time. And this is what the communication plus the synchronicity is what allows for this unified conscious field. Um, well, uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but let's just say in part four, we're going to be seeing that's complete and utter rubbish because scientifically we know um, that certain parts of the brain that when we would just walk into a room and we produce this unified conscious view, uh, synchronicity and communication is not enough to um, solve the problem in the same way it could with the chefs. Like if they had phones and they could call each other and ask what's on your list and that sort of thing. But um, that doesn't happen in the brain. They're, the brain is composed of separate and isolated subsystems that don't uh, actually interact with each other. Um, at a in you know in a given time in order at least at a given time in order to produce this unifying field of just walking into a room and, and having that unified conscious field so you can't rely on the communication addition additional condition um, to help you overcome this objection so yeah I think this argument stands I think it is actually a forceful one and both the fact that the fact that we have this totalizing I experience this totalizing unified field of consciousness at a given time uh, proves that we cannot be physical substances because a physical brain is atomistic in nature and is incapable of producing a, such a totalizing conscious state uh, so that's the first argument down. Um, the next argument that we're going to be going into, the next pro-substance dualism argument, is actually one that I presented on the S the main SNS show with David Johnson. And this is the enduring self argument. So it's sort of related to the first argument, where we're, we're looking at the unity of consciousness uh, at a given time. At that moment you walk into the room, you have a, a unified field of consciousness of everything at that time. The enduring self argument is sort of saying, well, again, we have a unifying state of consciousness through time and physical change. Um, so just to lay out what the premises are of this argument again, I, I uh, quickly did it on the show with David, um, but here it is uh, for you guys. So premise number one, if something is a physical substance and or object uh, composed of physical parts, then it does not survive over time as the same object if it comes to have different parts. Uh, premise number two, my body and brain are physical objects composed of parts. Premise number three, my body and brain are constantly coming to have different physical parts. Uh, premise number four, which is a conclusion based on the previous three, therefore my body and brain do not survive over time as the same object um, premise number five, but I, as an essential self, do survive over time through physical change as the same object. I, or let's put it this way, I, I do survive over time as the same object. Therefore, conclusion, I, my essential self, the conscious subject or substance, am not or cannot be identical to my body or brain 
i.e. physical substance, as per the law, the logical law of identity. Um, yeah, this, this argument is logically valid, uh, doesn't create, doesn't, um, you know, the conclusion follows necessarily and inevitably from the premises. So once again, uh, we need to look at, well, does this argument uh, contain any, is it a, is it a sound argument? Uh, how do I warrant the truth on a balance of probabilities of each of the premises? So in the first place, uh, premise number two, this is easy. Um, you're a liar if you, if you say this is false. My body and brain are physical objects composed of physical parts. Yeah, I'm pretty sure science backs me up on that. Uh, I don't see anyone disagreeing with that. Boom. Premise number three, same deal. Science backs me up. Even David J. the Skeptic uh, in our show on the coherence of Christian theism part one. Uh, when I presented this this argument, said, uh, yep, look, I agree. Every seven years, my body and brain are constantly coming to have different physical parts. Every seven years, you are totally brand new. All your cells and, and molecules are completely different at that point. Um, but this it doesn't even need to do that. Uh, every second or, or whatever, we're becoming, we're constantly having different physical parts. If, if your hair follicle falls out, okay, you or your hair is growing growing on your face or something like that so you know or cell division this is again undeniable I, I can't see any skeptics uh, bringing this up uh, as a problem and premise number four is undeniable in that it's a conclusion based on premises one through three um, so the controversial premises are going to be premise number one and premise number five uh, so let's start with premise number one uh, now, premise number one, believe it or not, in the show with David J, he didn't actually question this premise. Uh, he just let that go and concentrated where I expected him to on premise number five. Uh, but nonetheless, there are some philosophers or skeptics and physicalists that have challenged this premise. So uh, it's not just a given in the same way premises two through four are. Um, so let's Let's see, premise number one, what was that again? So that is, if something is a physical object composed of physical parts, it does not survive over time as the same object if it comes to have different parts. Uh, and to that, I, I, you can also add relate and or relations. Um, so yeah, I, th I think this is pretty obvious, uh, but like I said, some people disagree. So let's find out about this. So the basically the warrant uh, for this um, for this premise comes from what's called a position of mereological essentialism. Um, so basically, mereological essentialism is the idea that an object's parts uh, and relations are essential to its identity. Uh, and when I say object, I mean a physical object, a physical substance. Parts and its relations are essential um, to its identity such that it cannot sustain uh, its identity um, to itself if it had alternative parts. Um, so a way to illustrate this uh, that uh, could be a simple way to illustrate this would be using the example of, let, let's say I take five boards and I label these wooden boards uh, A through E or one through five, doesn't matter. And then I nail them together to create a raft. Okay, that's a physical object. It, it has physical parts and physical relations. Um, 
Now let's say we took out board B and replaced that with another wooden board labeled F. Well, uh, if this was the case, as a physical object under muriological essentialism, we have an entirely new bo uh, boat or raft. That is not an identical uh, raft that we now have. And again, I think this is obviously true. No one really denies this. Science, Modern science is on my side here, but uh, I'll get into that later. But, but, okay, well, what about here's another case? Well, what about if, let's say we took back out board F and then put board B right back in, the exact same board. Would we then have the original boat that we had? Uh, once again, the answer is no, because it's not just that the physical parts are the same, but also their bonding relations have to be the same as well. And when I nail that in the second time, I'm not going to do it exactly the same way. So it's, it's not an identical board because of those bonding relations. So it's not just enough to have the same parts. You also have to have the same bonding relations or physical bonding relations in order to be considered identical and it, it in this case this boat illustrates it doesn't so obviously the body and the brain are like this raft they're a physical purely physical object uh, they are a mere uh, physical objects are muriological aggregates a combination of its physical parts and relations um, changing any part of that mix produces an entirely different physical object to come about and this is predicated upon a notion of muriological essentialism um, of identity now it's important there are some physicalists such as that we'll be learning about in part four such as animalists and material constitutionalists uh, who actually deny this premise they deny muriological essentialism uh, and its its validity so they might they might uh, point to an example of a tree losing a leaf and they'll say well that's still an identical tree it's the same tree just because it lost a leaf uh, you know it's it's got a different physical part and or different physical relations um, that that doesn't mean it's a brand new tree so that's their their sort of claim on that um, but then that's obviously not the case actually they're they're false and matter modern science agrees with me uh, based on modern atomic theory of matter. Um, it just doesn't support their view because material objects are made up of billions and billions of molecules and atoms um, filled with relatively large gaps of empty space between them. So, uh, yeah, using this modern atomic theory, it actually tends on a balance of probabilities at the very least to support the notion of muriological essentialism uh, and therefore the truth of premise number one these kind of kinds of physical changes cannot sustain identity whenever an alternative is present um now interesting for you guys to know david johnson didn't um bother even challenging this premise when i brought it up with him brought this argument up with him in our show um it's it's not a common view most people know you're full of rubbish if you believe that if you believe that identity could be sustained through physical part and or relation relational change um uh, yeah so a denial of muriological essentialism is not really a popular view anymore today uh but just be aware that it is out there um and yeah it's just you can look into that for yourselves uh the majority of scientists are on my side so yeah i i think this premise is warranted um so let's turn to what the the crucial premise is, the, the major area of disagreement. What 
what David J uh, did actually challenge me on in our show, and that's premise number five. Um, how do we know that we act, that my enduring self actually myself actually endures as the same identical object or substance um, over time, even through material and or physical change uh, within our bodies or brains? Well, if you remember on the show in the first place. I basically presented what I think is the strongest uh, evidence. It's the subjective, properly basic belief. I mean, it's just obvious. We know, I know with absolute certainty, I'm right, you're wrong, skeptics, that I am the same person I was when I was seven years old. That was me. That wasn't some other random guy. That wasn't some, you know, badly cloned, badly cloned memory Dale number 585, and I'm badly cloned Dale, memory Dale number 5086 or something like that right now. Um, no, I, I am the same person. I endure and I just know it. And I would say everyone who's a rational person knows this to be the case uh, intuitively, just through simple introspection. But is it the case that I even need to go back that far? Do I, do I have to say, well, I'm the, the person I was seven years ago and, and all that? Um, Actually, no, because physic all I have to prove is even less stringent than that. Uh, all I have to prove is that I'm the same person through a few seconds worth of uh, temporal succession. Because, uh, so let, let's say, I remember I walk into that room and I have my unified visual field. But now let's add the dimension of time this time. So let's say I walk in and then I, I have an immediate, I look at my desk and have an immediate brown, black, or white sensation, whatever color your desk is, uh, blue with pink polka dots, I don't know. Um, okay, then two seconds later, uh, I have a desire uh, to get to move that desk to two inches to the left. Um, three seconds later, at time three, I'm, I have a thought about eating an ice cream cone. Uh, so different I have different conscious states that come about um, at different times just within the space of a few seconds within five seconds but yet I am exactly the same person I endure through those states and that also holds true even though within the space of five seconds I'm I'm physically changed I don't have the same physical parts I might have lost a hair I don't have the same physical uh, relations or that sort of thing and the same applies if you want to yeah but we're our brain it doesn't matter if you lose a hair or not that's periphery um our brains are constantly going through physical changes in their relations and changing from brain state to brain state even in the space of a few seconds yet we all know properly basic belief i know i am the same person that is having that is the same conscious subject of having that that uh, that brown sensation on my desk, then having at time two that desire to move my desk two inches to the left, then three seconds later at time three, uh, the same one having a thought, the same person having a thought uh, about the ice cream. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm sorry. I think it's just obvious here that the physicalist is wrong, and we all know it to be true. And this is especially obvious uh, if you if you think about it in terms of physical states changing or brain states changing within the space of you know seconds really less than a minute 
do you know that you're the same person a minute ago as you were now? Um, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna make this well, people come in degrees, and that ridiculous. I'm sorry, it's it's just ridiculous. Um, I hope this this example can help put it into perspective. Um, also, uh, here, here's another example that philosophers bring up as well, and that. That's the fact that it's impossible to gain any knowledge. The, the person, the you, that's having uh, the conscious state of looking at premise one of my argument versus premise two versus premise three is completely different from a physicalist perspective. Um, different physical states and or relations are obtaining with each premise. Therefore, you could never put them all together to come to knowledge of a conclusion. Um, this is another argument that a... That a major philosopher has come up with and he's done a lot of work on that so i think that it it may sound like i'm just offering again the properly basic belief with this enduring self argument and in a way i am i, I am just a, appealing to the same thing i did with david but i'm putting a more nuanced approach on it and adding a layer where i think it makes it more difficult for you to maintain the physicalist perspective um in the context of within the with just within a few seconds if you're going to say well um there is no degrees right the law of excluded middle so david johnson responded well you're you're the same person to a degree no no you're not you're either identical to the same person that you were at time one uh or you're not um you know within after that five seconds you're either identical to who you were five seconds ago or you're not there is no middle ground where you're the same person to a degree there are no degrees um under a physicalist perspective you are either identical sharing all those physical properties and bonding relations uh parts and bonding relations or you're not um and i think it's obvious that we are but yet physically and scientifically we know that actually you're not identical physically so how can these be true it's just obvious there has to be a non-physical self that endures through this time uh, even if it's as short as a few seconds or up to seven years ago where it might be more you know there might be more room to say well were you really the same person again i would say yes i was but i, I think it helps when i'm compressing the time down to a few seconds uh, and various brain states versus conscious states within a period of like five seconds or ten seconds, whatever it is, um, I think my point kind of becomes a bit more clear and, and solid, even if it is just an appeal to people's properly basic beliefs. A quick addendum here uh, to with this argument. So just sort of applying it to uh, David Jay's theory about us being a badly what our conscious subject is, what the conscious subject is, or the conscious substance isn't necessarily the brain, but it's a badly cloned memory. Um, so yeah, the same could apply. You could do the same example or illustration talking about, okay, within a matter of seconds, I have the event that creates a brain state. Um, and then five seconds later, I'm, I remember, and that creates a new memory engram. Um, yet I'm the, very clearly the same person uh, that the experience had. There is no degrees of person. I'm not half um, badly cloned memory Dale number one uh, and half badly cloned memory number two as that memory engram is, that new memory engram or whatever it is is being formed. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to, to add that even with David J's nuance uh, about us 
you know, his theory that we're the badly cloned memory theory there. So, yeah, uh, that's just what I wanted to add. And now we'll move on to the next argument. Okay, uh, so let's move on to the third argument. Um, and this is going to be an argument that I should have brought up with David, actually. But it, it's, um, so the argument from free will, uh, as well as moral and or epistemic responsibility slash blame uh, and punish and the notion of punishment and that sort of thing. Like, so it's, it's sort of related to this enduring self uh, notion, right? Because obviously, in the first place, we believe that we have free will. The substance dualists believe we have libertarian free will. And therefore, I make choices and we are morally and or epistemically blameworthy um, for what we choose to do. It makes perfect sense. Our prison systems are predicated upon this. Um, it, and it seems obvious, I, I'm sorry to say. Um, but here's another dimension. Well, what about the enduring time? Well, if I'm literally a different, I'm badly cloned uh, memory Dale number 500, uh, it was badly cloned memory Dale number 400 who, who raped that girl or killed that man or something like that. I shouldn't be punished. Badly cloned Dale 500 shouldn't be punished for what 500, for what 400 did. Um, so obviously it, it's just this common sense notion, this properly basic belief that we all have free will and therefore can incur uh, blameworthiness uh, either morally or epistemically. If I fail in, ep in an epistemic duty or something like that uh, and should be punished even throughout time. Um, because we are the same person. Um, and again, that can't be the case, as we saw, because uh, as per this argument, number one, if I'm a physical substance or object, such as a brain or body, um, then I cannot have free will, and thus I'm not morally or epistemically blameworthy. So this is the first premise in the argument. Um, premise number two, but I do have free will and am morally and or epistemically blameworthy on occasion. So therefore, I am not a physical substance. Uh, again, this is a nice, simple argument. I, I, I like taking these simple ones where I can reduce it down to as few premises as possible. Two premises, simple conclusion. It's logically valid. Um, there's no logical fallacies or that sort of thing. Again, it boils down to are these premises sound? Um, now, in terms of premise number one, under physicalism, that entails determinism. That determinism is true for all physical objects. This is a scientific fact. The majority of scientists are all on my side. This is the way physical objects... This is true. That Physical events, let's say it that way, physical events are fully determined um, by prior states of affairs which are sufficient to cause those results. Uh, now this is the case at least at a macro level. Um, and, you know, we're not going to get into debates about quantum indeterminacy. Don't give a fig. Totally irrelevant to this debate. This is a macro-level debate, so it doesn't matter. Uh, although, as a side, I also believe at the quantum level things are determined as well, physically. I don't believe in quantum indeterminacy. Um, but it doesn't matter. Let's pretend that's right. The notion of free will is at a macro-level debate. Uh, and at that level, determinism is uncontroversially true for all physical events. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think premise number one is relatively uncontroversial, believe it or not, uh, at least it should be. Um, so it really comes down to premise number two. 
yeah, but do you actually do I actually have libertarian free will? Uh, am I actually blameworthy and and uh, worthy of punishment if I do something immoral or if I fail in an epistemic duty here uh, in presenting this series? Do I do I really deserve the scorn of you skeptics saying how stupid my uh, my argumentation is and all of that? It's not my fault if I'm determined. Um, to be saying what I'm saying, uh, how dare you blame me for that? Who do you think you are? Um, no, I, I think we, again, properly basic belief level, we, we know that we have this. Um, so yeah, that that's going to, once again, I hope it's not too disappointing, but I, I'm going to appeal with this argument once again to a properly basic belief that we all know we have libertarian free will. Um, we just know our prison systems, our judicial court system is predicated upon uh, the fact that because we have free will, we are responsible for the choices that we make. If I kill someone, I deserve to be punished to go to jail. You know, if I do something, if, if I'm arguing stupidly here or I bring up Molinism, um, that was my choice to, to bring up a Molinistic defeater, at which point you guys have the right to say, oh, here he goes again, talking. he chose to do this. If I'm determined, you don't have the right to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I would just say, let's focus in on this notion of libertarian free will. Um, it's a properly basic belief. I know 100% I have libertarian free will. But I have to admit, this is controversial. In fact, one of our listeners, Darren, um, mentioned that, believe it or not, the majority of, of experts disagree with me. They, they hold to a position known as compatibilism, and this is the case. So this is a controversial premise. Um, and the way I, I warrant it is through this properly basic belief. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. Uh, I, I don't buy this. This is just your bias and that sort of thing. You, you could be deluded, Dale, or something. Um, so, yeah, what, what I plan to do is sort of go into an excursus. This gives me an opportunity to um, respond to one of our other listeners, David R. He, he once asked me, Dale, do you mind sort of going into a bit of detail as to what are the differences between libertarian free will uh, versus, you know, determinism or compatibilism is what he is what he asked about there. So, yeah, I, I'm actually going to take a, an opportunity to sort of expand or elucidate uh, the differences between a libertarian free will notion versus a compatibilist notion. Um, and use that to sort of provide some more nuance upon which your properly basic beliefs might function a little bit better if you have a little bit more fuller knowledge or clarity on what are the what are the differences between free will versus a compatibilist notion uh, of free will. So yeah, let, let's get into that. Okay, so I think it's important to understand that there are two fundamental positions here. There's the libertarian position, so that's true libertarian freedom, free will, uh, the position that I'm going to be advocating for, or there's determinism, uh, basically the view that every event is ultimately determined necessarily by prior conditions and factors. Um, and in the context of our, our, our making choices, uh, whether you call them quote-unquote free choices or whatever, uh, ultimately all of those choices have, are determined you know, from the dawn of time, ever since that, you know, ultimately all the way back to the Big Bang, if you want to say, uh, 
it's all part of the same causal chain and that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, those are the two basic positions. Now, with determinism, to be fair, um, because this is going to be comparing libertarian free will to compatibilism, you need to understand that there are different types of determinists. Um, and basically, there are two different types. So there, there are hard determinists. Uh, virtually, this isn't a, a popular position, um, at least not among philosophers of mind. Uh, but then there's the majority position, the soft determinists, and these are the compatibilists. Um, as I said, it's the majority view today. So basically, the difference is the latter um, is what we're going to be focusing on here. And they try to say, look, uh, determinism is true on a physical level. Uh, ultimately, everything is determined physically. Um, but they also say, but determinism is compatible with free will or freedom. Uh, you know, being a free agent, let's say, rather than a free-willed agent. Uh, I'm a free agent. I have freedom, and that is compatible with a, a straightforward, hard determinist understanding of the physical universe. And libertarian free will advocates, on the other hand, obviously believe, well, no, that the substance itself is the final cause. Uh, I am the prime mover in a new system of causal chain, in a new causal change. I'm not causally determined by any prior factors or conditions to make my choices I, um, in order to bring about a certain cause or an, or an effect. So that, that's sort of the fundamental difference on the positions. But let's focus now again. Libertarian versus compatibilists. Uh, what what are the main, uh, the five general areas of comparison that philosophers um, have, uh, you know, philosophers of action, for example, have come up with to contrast these two positions? Uh, and let's see if this sort of elucidates uh, a properly basic belief within you that hey, yeah, I do have libertarian free will. Compatibilists are crazy. Um, you know, let, let's see if I can kind of jog that out of you by elucidating or clarifying the differences um, in these five areas. So the first general area of difference is in regards to the ability condition. Uh, now, believe it or not, most philosophers, uh, both compatibilists and uh, li libertarians, believe that in order, it's, it's, uh, the ability condition is necessary for one to be said to be free. Um, and it basically just says, look, it, it's necessary um, in order to be considered a free agent or to have freedom, one must have the ability to choose to act differently than what one actually does uh, in the world. I, um, I must have the ability to choose to eat an orange over an apple uh, on a given occasion, even though I actually chose to, to eat the apple that day. Uh, now, here's where they disagree. Uh, and it's over, okay, well, what does it mean to have an ability uh, to do otherwise? What does that entail? And this is where compatibilists uh, differ to, to libertarians. Um, compatibilists believe in what's called a hypothetical or a uh, conditional ability. Basically meaning, look, one has the quote-unquote ability to choose to do otherwise uh, only in the event that another prior condition had obtained. Um, so, for example, uh, I had the ability to choose uh, the orange rather than that apple only on the condition that I had a desire for the, f the former prior to my making that quote-unquote choice. Um, 
But since I desired to eat an orange, I desired to eat an apple in that case, I necessarily uh, chose to eat that apple. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's determined, your choice was determined to eat that apple because your desires were one of the prior uh, desires, beliefs, blah, 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 uh, were, were necessarily determined what choice you were going to make. But had you, on the condition, hypothetically, if you had different desires, different beliefs, blah, 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 you could have chosen the orange. So that's their notion of ability. Now, libertarians, on the other hand, have a more realistic understanding of ability. Uh, and this is a categorical ability. So it's it's a, known as a dual ability. It, it's not just uh, a hypothetical ability uh, based on prior conditions being different or not. It's I actually, in the moment, have a dual ability to choose to eat the apple or to refrain from choosing to eat the apple. Uh, I also have the choice to eat the orange or to refrain from eating the orange. Um, so, and this is regardless of any of the conditions. I am a prime mover. It doesn't matter. The, the prior conditions, my desires, beliefs, uh, the fact that a butterfly flapped its wings, totally irrelevant. I am, I am making a spontaneous choice to either do or to refrain from doing. And, and this is the fundamental difference. Compatibilists only give a one-way ability and it's hypothetical. Libertarians give a dual ability to human beings uh, and it's a categorical ability. So when you're evaluating on, on your end, bear this difference in mind. When, when you're trying to assess, do I have a warranted true belief via a properly basic belief uh, that I do have libertarian free will or not? Keep this notion of the ability and the contrast between what it means to have a, a libertarian free will versus a compatibilist notion of ability. Um, so, yeah, let's move into the second condition, and this is called the control condition. So, obviously, uh, in order to have, in order to be said to be free, uh, you need to have control over the choice that you make. Uh, again, libs and compats uh, agree on this. That'll be my short form. Libertarians are libs, compatibilists are compats. So um, they actually agree on this. But once again, they differ quite radically uh, as to what control means. What, what does it mean to be in control? Um, so for compatibilists, remember, they, they agree that our free will uh, is like is ultimately like every other physical event totally determined by prior states of affairs they're, they're de causally determined in a series of prior cause and effect chains uh, stemming all the way back to the Big Bang uh, ultimately um, however the, the way they differentiate themselves from hard determinists is that they will say well no but they can also make free choices and they're only quote-unquote free if the causal chain that causes them to choose or determines their their quote-unquote free choice in a given um, sequence of cause and events uh, runs through the agent in a proper way. Uh, so it has to be a proper sequential cause and effect chain versus an improper uh, cause and effect chain. Um, so what would what's the, what is the heck does that mean? Um, so a proper cause and effect chain runs through the agent, the agent's control, uh, meaning it runs through the agent in a way uh, in the terms of, well, one of the cause of my making the choice is based on my personality or 
uh, my beliefs, my desires, my motives, um, as opposed to some other causal chain that has nothing to do with me. So, for example, if a scientist uh, pricks my brain and my arm goes up, compatibilists would say, well, that wasn't a free choice because I didn't have control over that. It didn't run through the proper causal chain of, oh, well, I'm running through my beliefs, my desires, blah, 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 now I raise my arm. Um, one causal chain bypasses that sequence of cause, causes and effects. Therefore, it's improper. Um, another way to illustrate this is to think of dominoes. Uh, so let's say we have a series of dominoes, uh, and then there's a fork. Uh, so, so yeah, hard determinants are just simple. We have a, all black dominoes. You flick one at the Big Bang. Boom, 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 boom. It follows the sequence. Uh, one knocks over the other. It's all necessitated. Compatibilists are a bit more tricky. So a way to illustrate the difference here is let's have that same that same domino style, but let's say after the tenth domino, it comes to a fork in a road. There's blue dominoes uh, going off to the left in a new causal chain, and then there's green dominoes, and then the green dominoes, and then both of those two streams come back or whatever into a, into the you know the original black stream at some point. So if the green dominoes represent the proper causal chain, you know, running my, my beliefs, my desires, these are causes that knock over each of the events. That's a, the green path represents a proper cause and effect. But once again, I, the green dominoes had no say in the matter. They didn't have the freedom to fall or not. They were going to, they were determined to boom, boom, you know, f create those effects of falling. Whereas the scientist poking my brain, that's the blue path, and that's different. That's not running through the proper green domino path or sequence of cause and effects. Uh, so therefore, that's not a free decision. Um, so that that's a way to illustrate. I, I hope I explained that that properly. Um, another, I could, yeah, okay. I'm gonna. I, I think you will get it. Um, now, libertarians, on the other hand, don't believe in any of this nonsense. They, we are not determined. We, we, prior conditions have nothing to do with our control over the situation. I control it as a, a prime mover, so to speak. Um, and libertarians will, will typically point to causal deviances um, to argue against this, the compatibilists, and they'll, they'll point, well, causal deviances happen all the time. Um, and these are things whereby uh, the conditions sufficient for uh, compatibilism to be true, like that proper pathway of cause and effect, is in effect, but yet the person is obviously not free, such as if they accidentally spill a cup of, uh, a cup of tea or something like that. Um, let's say you're a spy and you, you're, okay, the signal, you're going to signal your people of danger uh, by spilling your, your cup of tea. Um, but then everything's present, you, it run, you know, you're, you got your beliefs, your desires, blah, blah, blah. But you knock over your cup of tea by accident, not a free choice to cause a signal. So that's a causal deviance. Um, once again, compatibilists will, will just sort of correct or modify their definition to say, to exclude cases of causal deviance in response to this. And, um, so yeah, just, just bear in mind when you're evaluating your, um, your own properly basic beliefs to see if they're a warranted true belief or not, uh, bear in mind this difference on the control. Uh, I think 
under the compatibilist notion, I'm, I'm sorry, it, it's just a farce. Just because the domino sequence runs through and knocks over, is determined to knock over green dominoes, uh, i.e., you know, the proper path of personality, beliefs, and all that, it runs through the agent in that way, doesn't matter. I That agent had no say in the matter as to what their beliefs, what their personality, what their desires were going to be, that was all determined. Um, so I, I think, yeah, control on compatibilist viewpoint is obviously a farce. And if you know that to be true, then you'll agree with the libertarians that free will exists. You actually have control over your choices and the ability to do or to refrain. Okay, so next up is the rationality condition. So the rationality conditions says, look, in order to make a free choice, the agent must have a personal reason a personal reason or a motivation for choosing to act in a certain way. Obviously, libertarians um, can allow actually for free actions that don't necessarily have any reason whatsoever. Um, such as if I'm just twiddling my thumbs one day, I don't have to have a... Some libertarians will say, well, you don't need a sufficient... You don't need a rationale for why you're doing that. You're just choosing to do it for no reason at all. Um, can... Compatibilists, on the other hand, nope, that's impossible. Rationality is necessary to be free. You, you must have a reason. You're trying to relieve stress or something like that, and therefore you're twiddling your thumbs, or or you're bored and you want to relieve your boredom. Um, so that's that's a difference, but it's not a necessary difference. Lib libertarians can also hold to there being a rationale every time they do something as uh, make a free choice as well. Um, now, one main difference here is that libertarians see the agent as the final cause uh, for any given chosen action, whereas compatibilists merely see human beings as an efficient cause. So that that's a fancy word. It, it's the instrument. Uh, we, we are merely the instrument or means by which an effect is brought about. Um, we're not a final cause in that, in that sense, like what libertarians say. Uh, another difference is that libertarians believe in a process of deliberation for rationality to obtain. Um, compat compatibilists obviously don't believe in this. Now, bear, bear in mind, there are direct versus indirect uh, forms of this, but um, I, I was uh, on the deliberation issue. I, was, I taught uh, one of our listeners, Tara, about doxastic voluntarism. Obviously, that, you know, we can just... Oh, I choose to believe in Islam now. I'm no longer a Christian. I, I believe in Islam. That's I can just volunteer to ch to change my beliefs. I, I libertarians actually deny this. Uh, this is not a popular view. Um, but there is indirect voluntarism where you can set yourself up to change your beliefs. You can freely choose to uh, learn to read Greek, uh, biblical Greek, to study the New Testament to see if it's true or if this is a contradiction or not and that sort of thing. And over time, you might change your beliefs and become a Christian because you'll see all the contradictions that skeptics uh, try to mention are just complete rubbish and it's not true. And geez, the Bible's inerrant. It's perfect. Um, so yeah, for, for compatibilists, freedom ultimately presupposes uh, rationality. Uh, without rationality, there's no freedom. They deny a conscious deliberation process uh, takes place even at a basic phenomenological level. It's a complete illusion. 
Um, this is completely backwards. I'm sorry. On certain things, I do consciously deliberate. I, I do this every day, or I do this um, when I'm considering uh, Anthony, for example. I was talking about my real seeker criteria, and he brought up the example, well, are, are you open-minded to uh, meditating within a, a religious context? If, if I'm a real seeker for Buddhism, um, because I'm not 100% certain Christianity is true, uh, shouldn't I be going to a, a Buddhist temple or, or engaging in Buddhist meditation practices or something like that, or, or Hindu engaging in Hindu yoga exercises of some sort? Um, within a religious context and I, I was deliberating about that for a second and ultimately my answer was no uh, I don't think you're allowed to do these within a religious context uh, I, I couldn't do that without being a hypocrite so therefore it's not a necessary thing but the point is I deliberated before I chose my opinion on that um, so obviously deliberation is a is a real phenomenon it can't be denied and compatibilists have to ultimately deny this uh, is real. Um, finally, there is a third area of difference here on the rationality condition. And this is the existence of acrasia. That's a fancy word. What does that mean? Uh, yep, I hear you, David. I'm, I'm explaining it. Um, so anyways, you know, acrasia just means, look, it's a weakness of the will. Adam and Eve had a weakness of the will when they chose to eat that fruit uh, and commit the original sin. Um, so a person, basically libertarians, see that a person can commit a crazia, um, and this is a real phenomenon. I can fail to act in keeping with my own preferences or values, desires. Um, in a given moment, that, that can happen. However, compatibilists deny this. No, a crazia is impossible. It's always, because we're determined, it's always our preferences, uh, beliefs that the strongest ones have to win. There's always this internal battle and in any given moment when we make a choice it's our strongest preference, desire or whatever that will always win out. It's, it's a survival of the fittest type deal um, in that case. But yeah, I, I don't think this is true of our experience. Uh, I think acrasia is a real phenomenon. I, I experienced this. I can attest. I've experienced the weakness of the will whereby my value system, for example, uh, pretend, uh, yeah, you're an alcoholic and you you desire not to um, not to drink alcohol anymore and to be you live your life free and all of that. But in the moment you're you see a drink and you're tempted to just have that drink. Uh, so you got two desires competing with each other. For the compatibilists, no, it's only going to be the strongest one that uh, wins out. Your your value system. I guess can sort can sort of be altered or changed from moment to moment. Whereas I would say um, no, actually my value system remains the same. Um, I know that it's in the moment. I know that it's better that I, you know, my preference, uh, my preference is not to drink that thing and become an alcoholic again or, or um, that sort of thing. But I can experience a weakness of the will. Uh, or a crazia where I just, ugh, I, I do it, I go for it, and, and I regret it afterwards. So it keeps my my original preferences or value system intact. That doesn't change. Um, but I do it anyways because of this weakness of the will idea. So again, if you, you see a crazia as a real phenomenon, then you have to conclude that libertarian free will is real. 
Um, and I, I think that's much more plausible, at the very least more probable than not, to be true as a real phenomena um, compared to what compatibilists try to say is happening and say that it, a crazia doesn't happen in this world and our values are just constantly in, in juxtaposition with each other and sometimes they all they change in terms of our value system or preferences and that sort of stuff. Uh, that doesn't ring true to me. Okay, four, finally, uh, causation. Uh, so for compatibilists, the only type of causation that occurs is event, event, or state-to-state uh, -state causation. Um, so they, they see it only events can be put into causal relations. Uh, so an example, uh, the event of a brick breaking glass, you know, it's caused by uh, brick being picked up, thrown, the motion of the brick, the speed of the brick, hitting the glass, making contact with the glass, the, uh, you know, the, the physical properties of the glass versus the brick, uh, bada boom, cause, and the effect is the glass breaks. Libertarians uh, admit to this. They, they say, yeah, there is event-to-event -event causation in the physical world. That's scientifically proven. No one denies that. But in addition to that, free agents... Uh, exist through are able to engage in agent causation as an unmoved mover so this is similar to the distinction that Richard Swinburne gives in his book on the existence of God um, whereby he takes the example of a burning uh, a boiling pot of water on a stove why is the pot boiling well we can give a scientific explanation uh, in terms of physical mechanisms event to event causation turning the knob creates a, an electric electricity running through the um, through the stove burner and the metal of the stove burner you know friction happens and causes heat and blah 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 and eventually water boils at certain temperature and all of this beautiful great but in addition to that we also have agent causation or what Richard Swinburne calls personal explanations as well it can be I'm hungry. I want to cook up some craft dinner. So that's why that's why the water's boiling. I'm waiting to put my noodles in, in the in the pot. Uh, so we have both and. Whereas compatibilists say no, there's only that one. And this denies our obvious experience. If you believe that there are personal explanations, um, as it seems obvious when you're considering your properly basic belief and whether it's warranted or not. Uh, this is a real phenomenon, uh, you know, the fact that personal explanations happen and it doesn't fit well. If you're a determinist or a compatibilist, aka a physicalist, uh, you have to deny this phenomenon that we experience every day and say it's an illusion or something like that. Okay, finally, the final area, area general area of comparison is personhood. So I, I, I've kind of hinted at these in the other ones, but... Compatibilists see a free person as nothing more than a property thing, uh, or another word, a myriological aggregate, or a property aggregate of various physical properties all put together into a certain physical relation. They see it like the raft, five wooden boards put into a single physical relation. That's an aggregate of physical properties and, and relations. Um, and yeah, so it can be reduced to nothing more than a series of events through time. Liber, uh, libertarian free will advocates see the free person as a substance in themselves. Um, so yeah, I think that's that covers the general areas there. Um, and as I said, I'm I, back into the context of our main series. 
the argument from free will uh, and moral culpability or, or responsibility and blameworthiness and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, I appeal to the fact that we have this obvious intuitive knowledge knowable through introspection that uh, via a properly based belief that uh, I do, human beings have libertarian free will. Um, and I've tried to highlight some of the differences between libertarians and compatibilists. Number one, to answer uh, a request from a listener, David R., so I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and number two, by highlighting the differences, it can help you reflect in a better way to say, well, even if I do have this properly basic belief, uh, is it warranted or, or is it a warranted true belief? Uh, or am I just deluded and somehow it can be defeated? Well, by highlighting these differences, I think you can see the compatibilists um, really are, are at a lot, they're straining really hard to make their case. The, the basic experience that we have of free will on a phenomenological level proves that libertarian free will uh, that we should trust our properly basic beliefs um, rather than, you know, catering to you know, holding out and saying, well, I, I, I'm afraid to make a decision based on that, based on my experience, experiential knowledge, because I don't want to look stupid and, you know, the majority of experts are compatibilists. Uh, who cares? Don't follow the consensus. You follow what you know to be true. Uh, but just before we move on with this free will thing, I can see uh, our our skeptical listener, Darren, uh, saying, geez, Dale, again, appeal to a, a PBB, properly basic belief, uh, philosophical arguments, no empirical evidence being mentioned whatsoever at all. Um, and he'll complain about this, you know, science, science is so much better than philosophy and logic and that sort of thing. Um, okay, well, I'm actually going to provide a certain counter example, a scientific experiment, a famous case study where skeptics will bring this up and say, well, this proves scientifically we don't have uh, libertarian free will. It was an, an experiment back in the 1980s, 1979, in the early 1980s by Dr. Benjamin Libet. Um, and many skeptics claim, as I said, this proves empirically there is no libertarian free will. And they'll present this as a defeater against your properly basic belief that you have free will and say science versus philosophy man you, you gotta always go with the science um but actually i'm going to show you with this case study why science is actually worse we, we shouldn't use neuroscience um against more knowledgeable and qualified philosoph philosophical or logical arguments um, because philosophers of mine, first of all, they have a more holistic knowledge base um, in which to use. and They know how to apply logical reasoning in a more consistent or rigorous manner than scientists usually do, including neuroscientists. Um, you know, scientists very rarely ever think about uh, rationality or, or the scientific method itself as a, you know, philosophers of science, that's their job. They, they talk about the logical underpinnings of the scientific method. A scientist's job is just to follow that method, blind faith to it, and they just do their job, which is great. Um, but I think philosophy is better equipped uh, because logic is a first-order discipline. Uh, philosophy is a first-order discipline. Logic is a part of philosophy, not science. Um, and that's why there are fields like philosophy of science, the philosophy of history. There's no such thing as the science of philosophy. Uh, despite what some atheists would like to have you believe. Um, but anyways, let's get back into this 
Uh, so what was Libet's experiment then? What What is it? So back in 1979 and, and the early 1980s, he conducted a bunch of experiments where he got people to choose to lift their fingers or press a button. He hooked them up to an EEG machine to measure their brain activity um, and ask them, you know, tell, tell me when you made your decision to lift your finger or press the button. So what he found is that there is a certain amount of brain activity uh, called what he called the readiness potential or RPE zone. Uh, and this took place in the brain exactly around 550 milliseconds prior to that person's finger being moved. Also, the subject uh, revealed uh, that they had only chosen to act. They became aware of their choice to lift their finger or not 200, milli 200 milliseconds prior to the finger movement. So obviously there's a 350 millisecond zone where this readiness potential, this brain activity is going off first, then the person becomes aware uh, that they've made their choice to do it or not, then they, 200 milliseconds after that awareness, then they do it. So the claim is, well, this proves there's no libertarian free will because this brain activity, this RP brain activity or readiness potential is causally determining the quote-unquote free decision uh, of these people to lift their fingers. So yeah, is this true? Uh, you know, obviously skeptics uh, will just sort of lazily go, this proves it, science uh, destroys all of the uh, philosophical argumentation. You know, you appeal to this properly, basically, if you're obviously deluded. This is a, an empirical evidence that defeats that claim that you're giving. Uh, well, unfortunately for skeptics, uh, this kind of sloppy thinking um, has been completely refuted and destroyed. They're, they're on several fronts. So let's get into that. So let's see why this is instructive uh, as, as to why it's wrong to always look for, to use neuroscientific evidence uh, in the way that skeptics do to deny libertarian free will or, you know, a properly basic belief in that sort of way. So number one, Benjamin Libet. Um, was a good scientist. Uh, I have to admit that, that you know I can't take anything away from there. But he was a sloppy philosopher. Um, he confused uh, terminology, and this in order to help make his case. So he he used various terms, technical terms, interchangeably, such as desire, decision, choice, intention, uh, and these are emphatically not the same. Philosophers are aware of this. Philosophers of action know how to differentiate these terms properly and the distinctions are relevant in terms of the conclusion that he's making. Secondly, and most important, this is the most important refutation, it completely destroys you skeptics, um, Libet himself discovered in subsequent experiments that his initial conclusions on free will are complete rubbish because even after this RP activity fired off in the brain, you know, 550 milliseconds prior to the action of lifting your finger or pressing the button, they basically the people still maintain the ability to veto that decision oh, and choose to refrain from acting. Libet and his colleagues actually gave it a term to this. They called it, quote unquote, the free want phenomenon. Uh, now this is interesting. This is empirical evidence scientifically documented by the same guy that you skeptics are using. Uh, and he proves my case. Remember that ability condition, the dual ability that determinists and physicalists necessarily have to deny is the case? Well, it looks like we've got empirical evidence backing up my properly basic belief from the guy that 
you know, skeptics ironically think is, is proving that free will doesn't exist. No, it does. We've got a dual ability. This free want phenomenon is a, an empirically verified phenomenon that actually exists. So it, it, it's obviously not the case that this RP activity is causally determining my choice to lift my, my finger or not, because I can choose to refrain from doing it even after it's fired. Uh, thirdly, uh, Richard Swinburne has really argued persuasively or even conclusively, I would say, that simplistic scientific experiments or advancements in neuroscience, uh, such as the, the Libet example, can never, not even in principle, they can never prove that determinism is true uh, for all of the complex choices that humans make. Um, it's there's just way too much involved in that sort of thing at best all we'll ever be able to do neuroscientifically speaking is come up with um, a list of correlations and that will always depend on uh, a person revealing uh, their internal conscious states and that sort of thing to us to come up with this correlation in the first place um, so yeah I, th I think that's a rather conclusive argument as well uh, check out what Richard Swinburne his arguments there um, Number four, even granting the delay of this RP to the decision and that sort of thing, um, does a delay prove anything? No, it doesn't. It's actually proof of uh, the soul. It's proof of substance dualism, or it, at the very least, to be fair, it's, it's equal proof because the substance dualism interactionism, it takes time for the soul to interact with the body and the brain uh, and vice versa. So yeah, this, this supports the existence of the soul and the free will. Um, so yeah, a time lag could be used equally well to my advantage as well. So yeah, in light of everything, as I said, on this free will, just, just think of the various differences and analyze your properly basic belief. Um, in terms of so-called neuroscientific empirical defeaters, uh, sure, we, we need to pay attention to these experiments, as I've done in this case study with Benjamin Libet, uh, but don't fall for the hype. Oftentimes, scientists' conclusions are way over-exaggerated beyond what the data actually um, entails, especially when it's relating to religious matters or, or that sort of thing. Um, so just be careful. Get the details, as I did with Benjamin Libet's experiments, and you know try to assess the defeater fairly. Um, but yeah, when it comes down to it, uh, even if there's something you don't exactly know all the answers on, I think the property-based belief is so strong it overwhelms and will always overwhelm the limitations of using neuroscientific evidence to make a conclusion on this front uh, to prove that determinism is true and we have no free will and that sort of thing. Um, that's, and at the very least, that's certainly the case at this period in human history, at this time, based on what we know. Um, so yeah, you should have no, the rational person will favor their properly basic beliefs uh, that they do have libertarian free will versus you know s some sketchy scientific neuroscientific experiment uh, sorry so the experiment itself is versus some scientific neuroscientific data based on an experiment which uh, comes attached with sketchy conclusions about there being no free will uh, so that's my take on that uh, let's move on to the final pro substance dualism argument argument number four uh, and this is my favorite. This is what I think is the strongest uh, in representing the case. It is known as the modal argument for substance dualism. Remember that modal logic, right? The 
logically possible worlds and, and all of that stuff, my, my favorite. Um, now, as I said, uh, with the modal argument for substance dualism, there are different versions of this argument. Um, but I'm going to give you, here's the one that I prefer myself. Uh, I'll include in the source a video to this. Um, Richard Swinburne is the one who came up with this. So, yeah, here it is. Premise number one. It is logically possible that I exist after all my physical parts, my brain body, is completely destroyed. Good. Premise number two. It is not possible for my physical parts, like body or brain, to exist after it is completely destroyed. Premise number three. The logical law of identity. So A is identical to B only if everything true and or possibly true of A is likewise true of B and vice versa. So if it's possible that I exist after all my physical parts are destroyed and it's not possible that my physical parts uh, can, are, continue to exist after they're completely destroyed, oops, they can't be identical. Something's possibly true of me, my essential self, that's not true of my physical body and brain. Um, so yeah, three simple premises. Therefore, I am not identical to my physical parts, my body or my brain. And consequently, I have an essential non-physical part in addition to my non-essential physical body and brain. Um, beautiful. Uh, so that's the substance dualist part. Richard Swinburne is a Cartesian dualist there. Uh, so he's with that argument, he's arguing for like separate substances. That doesn't matter. We don't even need to, to worry about that because my minimal definition is consistent with Thomistics. All that we need to know is that uh, I have an essential non-physical part. That's that's it. Um, so yeah, let's. Uh, is this argue this logical argument is logically valid? He does. Richard Swinburne did all the work. There's no flaws or fallacies and that sort of thing. Uh, so why are they sound? Are the premises true? More plausibly true than not? Well, premise number two. Uh, yeah, that's that's fairly obvious and uncontroversial. You're a total fool if you deny it. Um, you know, it's not possible for my physical parts, like my body or brain, to exist after it's completely destroyed. Um, yep, check, 100%. Premise number three, the, log the first principle, uh, the logical law of identity. Yep, check, obviously true, self-evidently true, impossible for it not to be true. Um, so yeah, that means it all boils down to premise number one. Is that a sound premise? Is it possible? Is it logically coherent that I exist after all my physical parts, my brain body, is completely destroyed? Now for you skeptics out there, notice the modestness of the weakness of this premise, meaning it's less stringent, it's easy to prove, because I'm not saying it's true that I exist after all my physical parts are completely destroyed, I'm just saying it's possible um, that I exist uh, in a metaphysical sense after my uh, physical brain and body are completely destroyed. So yeah, th this is, how do we warrant premise number one? Well, this is, once again, surprisingly easy to do using our modal evaluating faculties to produce properly basic beliefs. Uh, we use this all the time and even scientific evidence backs this up as well. Um, so we actually all know it's logically coherent. There's no logical non-contradiction, uh, either narrowly and or broadly, that results um, from imagining my existence after all of my physical body is destroyed. 
uh, including my brain and central nervous system. There's no logical contradiction uh, in conceiving of that possibility. You know, my existence in a disembodied state. Ghost movies do it all the time. Um, I, I mentioned some, there's also scientific evidence that people can use. NDEs, near-death experiences, provide scientific evidence um, for this phenomenon and provide, at the very least, even if we can't pretend you're a skeptic and, oh, I, I don't think we can prove it's true that this actually happens given the ND evidence, doesn't matter. For this premise, I'm just using the ND evidence NDE evidence to provide a prima facie plausibility or or a logical coherence to such a notion. Scientists uh, can see this as a possible, logically possible or a coherent notion. NDE researchers do it all the time. So if you see that as valid, then you have to agree with premise number one. It is possible. Not that it's true, necessarily. It's just possible that I exist after all my physical parts are completely destroyed. Yeah, I, I think this is strong. Like, this is the strongest argument to me. I'm virtually certain, I would even, I'm virtually certain, 99.99% um, uh, certain that this argument proves that premise number one is right, 100% for the other ones. So this argument is very strong. This is my favorite one. And I'm 99.99% warranted that based on this, that uh, I am not, substance dualism is true. Um, however, to be fair, skeptics uh, have raised some objections to this notion, to the warrant of premise number one, uh, the fact that it's uh, logically coherent that I, my essential self, can exist after my physical body and brain are completely destroyed. Um, so just to save time, because we're well over the one hour mark at this point, I'm just going to, here's the main one, here's a main objection. And, um, it's relevant to the issue of the validity, uh, or, or at the very least, our, the general reliability of our modal evaluating faculties. And I want to highlight this because I, I've got into our uh, discussions or arguments with uh, our skeptics before, like Darren, who, who just challenged these modal evaluating faculties. They're not reliable. They, they don't work. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Just deny them and that sort of thing. So. Um, this is why I want to raise this objection. So, so skeptics like to argue that the first premise is warrant, warranted via our modal evaluating faculties. I can quote unquote imagine um, that I exist as a ghost, you know, a, dis a disembodied existence when my physical brain and body are completely destroyed. But you can't conceive. It's actually logically impossible. So you, it's not possible. You, you just can't conceive. Uh, and they'll point to there's a difference between imagining something and conceiving of something. So what they'll say is, look, your your so-called modal evaluating faculties um, producing this properly basic belief for you that it is possible you exist um, only establishes the epistemic or conceptual possibility. That's imagination for this disembodied existence. It doesn't prove metaphysical possibility and or logical possibility that's what's required for premise one to be true um, and for the argument to work that's related to conceivability so in the first place how would we respond to this so in, in the first place to the skeptics this is just simple crude question begging they're just desperate to dismiss the evidence so they just make this up um, this distinction and that sort of thing and and say that our modal evaluating faculties don't work uh, secondly, the NDE evidence is scientific, empirical evidence backing up 
our modal evaluating faculties. And this objection just dis doesn't dismisses all of that, whether the NDE evidence could be true uh, or what uh, the NDE evidence provides in addition in terms of coherent logical coherence or metaphysical possibility in addition to our modal evaluating faculties. Um, but yeah, let, let's just for the moment forget the NDE stuff and just focus on the modal evaluating faculties. Is it true that they only provide epistemic possibility uh, versus metaphysical possibility conclusions? Um, and are they generally reliable uh, in coming up with conclusions on, on whether something is metaphysically possible or impossible or not? Now the counterexamples that they usually, skeptics will usually bring up are things like temporal paradoxes to illustrate the differences. So they'll say, well, look, I, I can imagine um, certain temporal possibilities that result in temporal paradoxes, such as me traveling back in time and killing my own grandfather and grandmother or something like that. Um, but a temporal paradox is actually log inconceivable. It's logically impossible. And they'll say, well, see, this highlights the difference between imagining something and conceiving of something and, and they'll say you can't rely on your modal evaluating faculties they're only good for imagining things and that's not necessarily always corresponding to something that's conceivable um, however I, I actually think this is wrong I, I think if we can imagine it that means it's conceivable and this is a controversial stance but this is what I believe um, so in that case how well how do I respond to these temporal paradoxes uh, docs examples then right um, well, in that case, what I think is going on is I think that we are conceiving properly. Our modal evaluating faculties are giving us general, are generally reliable and giving us uh, accurate representations of logical possibility in this case, but we're not fully understanding what we're conceiving of and therefore we're mislabeling it and that sort of thing. So when I'm conceiving a temporal paradox situation, it's conceivable that I could travel back in time, kill my grandparents, uh, and then continue on existing and that sort of thing because of alternate dimensions, um, you know, a parallel universe like in Back to the Future. And I, I think that's what we're conceiving of. But then we're mislabeling that and saying, well, let's think about everything happening within the same time stream. And that's logically impossible. Once we have this full understanding, understanding of the scenario, well, then our modal evaluating faculties kick in and we know they're working perfectly on the proper information. If it's in a single time stream, it's logically impossible. Yep, that's why we realize the temporal paradox. If it's not, if it results in alternate dimensions and that sort of thing, boom, that's why I can conceive of this sort of scenario in the first place. Um, it's just unbeknownst to me, uh, what I'm actually imagining and or conceiving of is the fact that the future me from another universe comes into a brand new universe, creates a new time stream by killing my grandparents and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I, I don't think pointing to these temporal paradoxes or counterexamples against our modal evaluating faculties actually prove anything. In, in fact, they actually prove that they do work uh, even better. It's just we lack a f we have to have a proper understanding of what uh, what it is we're applying our modal evaluating faculties to uh, when relying on a properly basic belief. Um, so yeah, again, I, I think that sort of defeats the skeptics here. Um, 
that's that's it for part three here. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, next time in part four, uh, we're going to finish off this bonus lecture series on substance dualism by assessing some of the main counter-substance dualist arguments um, that are provided by skeptics, saying that substance dualism cannot be true, uh, as well as looking at some of the, four of the main physicalist explanations for the conscious subject or the conscious substance. What is that? Uh, from a physicalist understanding, and there are four main ones that we're going to be looking at. Um, so, uh, and we're going to find those wanting. We're going to assess those and, and see why they're wrong. Um, so, yeah, that's the plan for next time. Uh, it's probably going to be a while again. There's going to be a bit of a hiatus um, because we have so many guests coming up. So, yeah, that'll probably be sometime in late March. So, yeah, take care, everyone, and have a good day. Bye.